my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. All right, y'all. Hello, hello, hello again. I'm Bozma St. John, and this is Back to Biz with Katie and Bose. And my co-host, Katie Couric, is still out. She is finishing up her book, and she'll be back next week. I promise this time. She'll really be back. It won't just be me by myself. I promise. <laughs> but this week, this week, we have something so special and juicy. It's a very sensitive topic and a personal one. Parenting. <laughs> it's, it's an industry like any other that we've discussed on this podcast, uh, but it is essential to running this country, and it's never gotten the resources, time, respect, or attention that it's needed to, in order to succeed. You know what I mean? Like we talk about bailouts all the time, but where's the parenting bailout, right? I mean, I, I think I'd need one. <laughs> uh, the pandemic has thrown working parents into the impossible situations, and we often wonder, will we survive it? I mean, I don't even know if I, I was able to survive fifth grade math, and now we're heading to sixth grade, and I don't know what that's going to be like. But if we come out of this, will we come out of it with a better work-life balance? I don't know. Well, we're gonna we're gonna talk about it today. We have a very special guest, Christine Michelle Carter, who is going to help me suss out all of these topics, all of these questions, and hopefully give us the light <laughs> to lead us in the right direction. So, welcome, Christine. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I am so thrilled to be on the podcast. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here because you know this is this is a big topic. There are so many challenges that we've been facing. Um, and although there have been many jokes made about parenting in the time of COVID, <laughs> it is not a joke. It really no. isn't. No. So you are a writer, you're a public speaker, you're a marketing strategist. Girl, yeah. you got a lot of titles. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you've also built a career out of advocating for working moms and black women. Hello. Yes. Uh, so, so can you tell us a little bit about that? How did you become such a prominent voice for working yeah. moms? So you forgot one of my titles, which is Chicken Little, because I ran around telling everybody that the work-life balance sky was falling years ago. And people accused me of being unreasonably afraid and dismissed me. But now people are saying, you know what, Christine, the sky is falling. It's crazy because I've been writing about the housework gap and the challenges that working mothers face for the past five years. Um, I started writing about it um, when I ended up having to pump in the bathroom stall after I gave birth to my daughter. And I just thought it was absolutely ridiculous. I had no idea what it meant to be a working mom until I became one. And I think if you learn at that point, it's too late. I've been writing about the 2020 recession two years ago, and I knew that there was going to be 
an event that was going to shift the sustainability of our so-called work-life balance. And that event was COVID, you know, the, the world is exposed to the fact now that even in married two income households, unlike mine, Women are three times more likely to be the spouse who carries the additional burden of the mental load of just everything that's going on. And, you know, it costs us $16,000 in lost wages. And for every dollar a man makes, we make just 71 cents. And, you know, men, even when we work remote, they're more likely in the same situation in the same job to make $100,000 or more, three times more likely, in fact, than us. And this is stuff that I've been writing about for years. So it's, it's crazy to me that all of a sudden the world is listening when I have been crying out for so many working mothers for so long. Yes, 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 yes. Well, I mean, I, I'm so, of course, impressed by your uh, predictive accounting <laughs> of what was coming. I'm like, you got any other tips to give us? Um, and I'm sure we'll get to that. But it is very difficult, especially because we are um, no longer saddled with distractions, right? That are outside of our homes. Yeah. Um, and we are bringing the things that used to be outside, inside. That's and right. so, of course, that's a big stress, you know, on relationships, on parenting, et cetera. Um, what are some of the struggles that that you're facing? Uh, you have two kids, right? Eight-year-old yes. Maya and five-year-old West. Yes. I have an 11-year-old daughter, yes. Liel. And yeah. woo, being a, a single working mom uh, with a child, of course, of school age is a difficult, difficult thing. Yeah. Um, but as you said, you know, you have certainly faced some challenges that you had to make really difficult decisions about in order to get to a place of peace. Can you talk though about some of those challenges and struggles that you faced in some depth that would allow for us to get a better sense of uh, what you were actually dealing with and then how, how you came out of it? So I guess I'm grateful that I went through a divorce because I was preparing my children on how to handle traumatic events prior to COVID even happening. So as a single mother, I had to have very honest and transparent conversations about my children. When it came to work, they understand that if my office door is closed, you better be dying or bleeding, and then you can come in. Um, again, very frank and candid, and I find that with mothers that we do so much and we try so hard to protect our children and shield them for the world and just make sure that we are the barrier between them and anything negative, that it's an emotional strain on us and it also doesn't prepare our children for the real world. So in exposing my children to the fact that, yes, your father has an alcohol problem, he has depression, your mother is a single mom, sometimes she has to work, sometimes she has to travel for work, Exposing them to the realities of their world makes them more well-rounded and balanced children who can adapt to change versus trying to shield them from everything. I feel like we're at a point now where COVID has just exposed our world, our personal and our professional worlds. Everything is out of whack. We're constantly disrupted and it requires us to shift our thinking if you have, were already having very honest and transparent conversations with your children or even with your employer as a working mom, then you're probably the ones who are thriving. Those who were trying to be that barrier for their children or hide their authentic selves at work as a mother, those are the ones who are struggling. 
Ooh, yes. Okay, we're going to put a real quick pin in that employer relationship. Yeah. You know, one of the biggest challenges I faced as a single parent, uh, my, my husband passed away from cancer about seven years ago. And um, in that in that trauma, I had to find ways to ask for help. I was so used to doing everything myself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, strong black woman over here. Hello. Right. Um, right. I was so used to going and trying to succeed. And, you know, you don't you don't ask for help because that's just a sign of weakness. Right? right. And so how and if if maybe do you ask for help and how do you do it in your life even now? Because it's like you know, people can't come inside. Right. So how, how are you getting help? What happens? Tons of people can't come inside, but some can. And it's so interesting. Many women actually have cited that COVID reminds them of past trauma. And for me, it definitely reminded me of what it meant to separate from my husband and how I tried to blow through it full steam ahead, strong black woman, like you just said, and how I really suffered. It's, It's funny because many moms are feeling like they're not important anywhere right now. And it's accelerated burnout. It's that whole emotional and physical and mental exhaustion from just having excessive and prolonged stress. And I find that, you know, when I hit that moment, I'm very aware of when I'm about to reach it. Some women may not be, but it's, you have to recognize it and then be real about your bandwidth. And, you know, you're not a superwoman. You have to think about what really drives you and really inspires you and prioritize. And I know that for me, whenever I have trouble focusing on daily activities or my anxiety is starting to make me feel out of control or I just can't manage my emotions, then I have to take a step back and lean on my tribe. And that could be just getting emotional support through social media. You're right. People don't have to be in my house. Or I can rely on a couple, a handful of people to actually come and help me and give me a relief. And that would be my aunt and my my brother and my mom. Hmm. Gosh, yes. He really do need to ask for help um, because burnout is real. It is. It is. Even and that's the thing, though, is that like, how do you recognize that it's coming? You just said that, you know, it's coming. How do you know it's coming? I know it's coming because if I can't focus on my day to day work, even like the simplest things, and if my anxiety is literally starting to make my hands shake and I have to sit down because I'm just like so frantic, that's how I know I'm about to hit burnout. Mm. Professionally, I've always known that burnout is the third stage of um, the first stage being imposter syndrome, the second stage being summit syndrome. And then when I hit burnout, I know that, you know, it's like the point of no return. But it took me a really long time to, to understand those those different tiers and, and what it meant for myself. Mm. Go through those steps. <laughs> Please. So, yeah, so no problem. Because, so. because we, need, we need the steps. You know, I need a map yeah. that tells, okay, Bose, listen, okay, these are the right. steps to burnout. Please yeah, so, go. Tell no us. problem. So imposter syndrome is just that feeling like you don't belong. And for me, I would constantly feel that as a black woman who's successful in the workplace, I'm also a millennial. I always felt like I didn't belong in the room. So to combat that before I hit step two, I used to keep a list of my accomplishments and didn't feel bad about advocating for myself in the workplace, reminding myself, everybody about my accomplishments, because we all know that performance reviews don't matter. It's 
minutes about what you do that day that really matters. Okay. Um, <laughs> but if, if I let my imposter syndrome get out of control, then I knew I was hitting summit syndrome, which was that feeling of chasing an unattainable corporate high. So just trying to get as many accolades and rewards and, you know, team hustle and team do it all the most. And like, I look at this week and I've shot a Walmart commercial. I'm talking to you. I got a promotion at work. Like I'm in summit syndrome. <laughs> hardcore. So I'm going to use this weekend to make sure I don't hit burnout. And burnout is really that state where, you know, it's the mental exhaustion and the physical exhaustion of all of that stress and trying to chase those highs and trying to feel like you belong. I think we can end the podcast on that because I I don't, (laughs) I don't think there's anywhere else to go. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, the hot topic issue, schools, To go back or not to go back? Now that is the question. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Back to Biz with Katie and Bose. And Christine and I have so much to get into about working moms in the workplace. And I have my own stories on this. I mean, I share one with Christine about after I gave birth to Lael and I was a new mom returning back to the office and the advice I got. So let's go there. When I had first had my daughter, I was so proud of her, you know, and she was so cute. Bias, hello, she's the cutest. Right. Uh, And I was working at Pepsi at the time and, you know, pretty successful, you know, getting promotions and all of that. Hot shot, I felt like. And I put my, the picture of my daughter proudly on my desk And a well-meaning colleague came and told me that I should take her picture down because people wouldn't take me seriously and they would think that my priorities had shifted. And so I didn't want that if I wanted to continue to accelerate. Now, throw in this situation where you may have, of course, your kids are running around. Like you said, you shut your office door and your kids know not to come in there. But there are things that happen and they disrupt the day and they disrupt meetings. And, you know, you're thinking about dinner or you're thinking about the homework that you couldn't complete and all of those things. How, 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 how do you even open your mouth to say anything to your employer? And how do you do it? What do you say in order to remain feeling in control and at, at some point, I guess, trying to get empathy for where you are? Yeah. So first, let's just take a moment. I have to, as a young black mom, thank you 
Uh, I'm in consumer goods. So I want to thank you for paving the way because that is a very traditional industry. And if it wasn't for women like you being authentic and bringing your whole self to work and hanging up pictures of your, you know, two pounder like me, your NICU baby, then it wouldn't, there wouldn't be room for me to be having these conversations with my employer, with other women to be able to have the conversations with their employer. But um, I definitely think that if employers want the best versions of their employees, then it's time to walk the walk that because you've been talking the talk for so long. There are so many moms right now who are feeling out of balance and disadvantaged and stressed. And all of that is normal. We're going through a pandemic. We were already at a disadvantage as working moms before COVID. Mm. And as we lose the world that we knew, it's natural to feel anger and fear and anxiety and loss. We are we're not remote working. We're trying to work and parent during a crisis and it's a lot and it's normal for us to be triggered and to parallel that to grief and to feel like we're bargaining or feel denial or sadness, all of the, the emotions that go through grief. So instead of spinning our wheels, trying to handle that kind of grief internally or worrying about obligations we know we'll never get to or won't remember, we need to let others in the workplace know that we need help. You know, we, we need to let our partners know that we have to put them in charge of to-dos. We have to take advantage of technology using things like Zoom and using um, digital workspaces with co- colleagues. And we have to stop feeling guilty that we're not super women. Um, I think a big thing is we need to understand the value of buffer space and communicating buffer space to our employers. So it's one thing to say, I got to go feed my kids. I'll be right back. But you won't be right back because you need to take the time to prep. You need to take the time to make sure the kids are eating. You need to decompress from that (laughs) and then get back into work. And and we seem to not value buffer space um, and communicating the importance of that to employers because booking meetings back to back is draining, especially if they're conference calls. So, you know, jumping from work immediately into helping kids is draining too. We we have to take advantage of that, take advantage of employee assistance programs, make sure that our employers are walking the walk, and we have to use our time off. Um, And that is something that a lot of working mothers are very afraid to do, uh, very afraid to bring their authentic selves to the workplace and say, I need to take time off. I need to take a mental break. But um, if you'll allow me just one more minute, there's a vicious cycle that people aren't aware of that occurs in the workplace. So what ends up happening is moms get anxious about appearing uncommitted to their jobs. So they and other caregivers opt out of taking advantage of employee benefits. What happens is that leads employers to think that moms and caregivers are fine and can manage. And then that makes them feel that they don't need to invest in caregiving benefits or sometimes even track data associated with caregiving. So then that lack of data leads to no changes in policy to support caregivers. So what ends up happening to moms and caregivers, they feel unsupported by employers and then they struggle to keep up with performance. And then that decline in performance leads to stigmas and biases for other caregivers. So I can't stress it enough that that cycle breaks if you're burned out and you take advantage of those corporate benefits because it not only benefits you and your mental health in the long term, um, but it also serves as a signal to employers that you're under strain and other caregivers in the office might be too. 
the kind of notes <laughs> that I'm taking, okay? We've learned about imposter syndrome, summer syndrome, and burnout. And now we're talking about the vicious cycle of benefits. I mean, yeah. Okay, so switching gears a little bit, right? Um, we're still talking about parenting in the age of COVID. So let's talk about school and going yeah. back to school because that's a hot topic. I got the survey from my daughter's school that asked me, right, how comfortable I would feel if she went back in person. Um, you know, do I trust that they would have the, you know, ability to make the school safe? Do I want online learning? Oh my goodness, this survey, yeah. it gave me anxiety just looking at the survey. <laughs> You know, yeah. But the American Academy of Pediatrics just released a statement in July saying that students are should be physically present in school as much as possible in the fall. Um, but there are many people who don't want to do that, you know, yeah. and who are really, yeah. really worried about their kids uh, not just going to school, but then on the other side, they're scared if they don't go to school, they'll have academic, social, and emotional learning issues. Like there's so many challenges. What is your thought about about this particular issue on returning to school to go back or not to go back? What, what do you think and what's happening where you are? So and, and let me tell you something. I've got a lot of thoughts on this. OK, mm. so <laughs> so, you know, teachers in the unions are pushing back against plans to open the schools and it's causing tensions with the parents and the lawmakers and there are some early predictions about what school is going to look like in the fall, but they're just that because the classroom sizes are on a much smaller scale at the summer school level, and it doesn't include the regular volume of students. And then there's talks of parents hoping to share teaching among parents. I know a woman who's turning her basement into a homeschooling center and creating homeschooling pods and hiring teachers. And Yes, that is a schooling option that feels safe, but it and it allows kids to have fun and it, and it builds social schools and it offers parents a break, but they're pricey and it's a privilege and it's complicated and it comes with its own homeschooling laws and it's going to cause educational inequity. And that's just at the school level. What really grinds my gears is childcare. And you know, as I'm, I'm out of the childcare realm right now, I have a fourth grader and a kindergartner, but the state and local officials in these schools and Congress needs to know that we need a robust plan for childcare. It's got to be a part of the plan to reopen schools because childcare is the second largest monthly expense for families after their mortgage or rent. In some instances, it's as much. And there are states that have shown that they lose about a billion dollars annually in economic activity because of childcare, because there is no childcare, uh, adequate childcare available. I'm in one of those states. I'm in Maryland. Mm -hmm. it, it, childcare is, it plays a critical role in people's ability to work. Um, lower income households right now don't have the economic resources to afford high quality childcare. Um, according to paid leave for the U.S., which is an organization I support, paid family and medical leave is paid time away from work or for welcoming a new child, caring for a family member or caring for your own medical crisis without the fear of losing your job. And right now, the U.S. is the only industrialized country without a policy, which means that one in four moms are going to go back to work in the fall within 10 days of giving birth. 
It means that people of color and low-wage working people are more likely to need access to paid leave, but the least likely to have it. They're the ones that they are essential employees. And in the pandemic, that looks like the grocery store employees that we need, the delivery drivers, the healthcare workers, not having any paid leave to take care of themselves, their kids, or family member. And that's just, it's dangerous and it's wrong. Mm, gosh. Well, let's dig, let's dig a little deeper into that piece um, yeah. because you just brought up such an important point about, of course, disparity. It's not a new topic to us. <laughs> we've, right. we've been talking about this a long time. And obviously it's not just even COVID, but we see, of course, the newly awakened racial and social unrest um, challenges that we see in the disparity of how COVID is affecting brown and black communities. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that and about how uh, this time and even education and taking care of, of our kids is disproportionately affecting communities of color? I wrote an article for Forbes in partnership. I found a stat with Lean In and Basically, they were looking at data around childcare, and I wanted to break it out further. And I found that Black women during the pandemic spend half a day more on childcare per week than white women. So if you put that into perspective, I believe you're in California, right? Yes, I am. Mm -hmm. So since California's stay-at-home orders went into effect on March 19th, to date, Black women in that state have spent nearly 230 hours more on childcare, just on childcare than their what? white counterparts. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and it's, we're not crazy. The, the pandemic is hitting black moms harder. We're more likely to be at risk from a medical perspective, more, more likely the women without children to show signs of emotional, physical, cognitive, and behavioral stress in the workplace anyway, including insomnia and heart problems. We're more likely to be single moms and the absence and lack of involvement from our child's father contributes to the decline of our health. So we were already disproportionately affected before there was even a conversation about COVID or going back to school. Mm. We spend nearly three times more hours per week caring for our elderly or sick relatives. We live in multi-generational homes. So it's, it's very difficult to be a Black mom right now and going through this and then thinking about how do I go to work and have my child be in school? It's, it's very dangerous. It's, it's worrisome. And I think that we're living through a public health crisis and we need to ensure that most of our women have paid sick days and paid leave to actually keep the schools and public spaces safe. I mean, we can't reopen without protections. It's paid leave isn't just a benefit. It's a need for black women. It's a need for all women and for families and for teachers. And if schools open, teachers need paid leave to keep themselves and their students safe. And parents need it not just to welcome new children, but to also make sure that the older kids are healthy and safe and able to learn. When we come back, childcare isn't a personal issue. It's a public issue. More with Christine Michelle Carter in just a moment. You're listening to Back to Biz with Katie and Bose, and we're talking about all the inequities and the disparities of being a black or a brown mom right now. My question for Christine is, how can we give these moms a break? So here's the gag. I wrote mm -hmm. about this a, a while ago. If you fix child care and provide access to high quality child care, 
it advances progress on racial and economic equity. And people really don't realize that. So once employers, once non-government companies, like public and private sector, recognize the fact that childcare is an economic development opportunity, and it actually costs state millions of dollars and in, in, in lost income and in lost um, economic stimulus to their area, then we will solve it. But right now, people think of childcare as a personal issue. Oh, that's that woman's problem. She's a mom and not a community issue. So we need to treat childcare like we treat public school and healthcare, like an essential service that is affordable and accessible for everybody. And it needs to address the short-term economic threat that we're facing with COVID, but then also a more sustainable business model for the childcare operators. Because right now they don't know if their employers are coming back and it's costly to operate too. It's a, a high demand and a low supply. So once we treat that like it is a, a, a public issue and it's an economic development opportunity, we'll then see a little bit more racial and economic equity. Right. Wow. So then what are the effects after the pandemic, right? So if we are advocating for this change in um, not just policy, but responsibility of non-governmental businesses and organizations, how do we actually continue that conversation after? <laughs> We're not yeah. talking a lot about after the pandemic. You know, people used to say going back to normal, and we realize now that that's, yeah. that's not a possibility. And we actually don't want it to be, right? Because a yeah. lot of what we're facing, we recognize as needs to change a system, this yeah. being a very big one. But then what happens? So how, how do you see this actually coming into effect? And then how is our world different because of it? So I can see two different scenarios happen. You know, we get the paid leave and the medical leave for families and life just changes overnight like that for so many different and disproportionately affected groups within our country. Um, I, I see it happening as benefits happen within organizations, but on a larger scale where people are reluctant to take the support or they are viewed negatively for taking the support. But there are so many organizations who have been fighting this fight even pre-COVID, like Mom Congress and Paid Leave for the U.S. and, you know, Senators and the Maternal Care Act and the CARES Act. There's so many different initiatives. Uh, Tina Lawson's act um, that I wrote mm -hmm. about for Forbes. So many different that are trying to support providing equity and, and fair solutions for folks who do have children or, or folks who are um, the minority, which we know are the, is actually the major, majority right now. But yeah. so that would be the positive scenario. But I actually am a big believer in history repeating itself. And to me, the worst case scenario, which is if we don't act, we could be faced with a repeat of World War II, post-World War II where men return from combat and women return to the home after the surge of women in the workforce. In 2020, that could look like women struggling to find childcare, being forced out of the workforce, new rules for childcare centers to reduce the number of children per group were already there. Um, we know that there's a, there was a, about one-fifth of parents who planned on having a nanny and turned out that only 3% were able to make it a reality because of the supply and the demand. We know that wow. 23 million working parents have no access to a child care provider. So 
you know, it's a dangerous situation. And it's very, it's very likely that women could be put back into the post-World War II area where they pushed out of the workforce, um, which is extremely dangerous because a quarter of all children in the U.S. live with a single parent higher than anywhere else in the world. And not only are we single parents, but again, we're caring for family and friends. So that's worst case scenario. God forbid that happens. I'm hoping for the change like that, that happens overnight, that so many different nonprofits have been advocating for and are prepared for. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, you, you certainly, um, you said the word in there, hope, (laughs) which, you know, I am, I'm an optimist. You look like an optimist as well. I mean, you, you're, you're laying out the facts, but all the facts are leading to a better future, hopefully. Um, so really let's, let's get to that. What gives you hope? Because we have been talking so much about the challenges that we are facing as parents, the greater challenges faced as single parents, the greater, greater challenge faced because we are Black moms who are single parents. But what gives you hope? Like, what gives you hope right now? Gosh, what's giving me hope right now is the level of empathy has skyrocketed from 2019. I'm sure if you did a year-over-year chart, it would just be exponential. The fact that, you know, uh, it's unfortunate that colleagues have said that Black Lives Matter started this year, because we know it didn't, and we know what it's like to go to the workplace in 2015 (laughs) and watch Philando Castile get murdered in front of his child and have to continue working and not get any type of empathy from our employers or our team members. But to see, you know, God rest his soul, George Floyd did not die in vain because the, the, just the current state of empathy towards black women in the workplace and the, I see you and I'm going to become an ally and I'm going to pass the baton and give you an opportunity to elevate your voice on a mainstream level, like share the mic. Now I participated in that, that that's unprecedented, you know, and, and then I think that COVID had COVID not happened and caused us to remember what it's like to be humans first and to show empathy and, and show a bit of humanity for our fellow man, I don't think that there would have ever been such an acceleration in the Black Lives Matter movement. So I don't think that he died in vain. I don't like to think that anybody who is suffering with COVID right now or who has passed from COVID died in vain. There has been uh, tremendous strides in humanity, especially in America right now. And I'm very thankful for that. That was Christine Michelle Carter. You can check out her book, Mom AF, and keep up with all she's doing on Instagram. And that does it for this week's episode of Back to Biz with Katie and Bose. You can also follow Katie and I on Instagram. Check out our favorite moments from these episodes and all that we're doing. And there's tons of other episodes of Back to Biz to catch up on. So if you haven't done already, go ahead and binge. Go find us on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever you can listen to your favorite shows. Katie's back next week. But until then, I'm Bozma St. John, and this is Back to Biz with Katie and Bose. Thanks so much for listening. Back to Biz with Katie and Bose is a production of iHeartRadio and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are Katie Couric, Bozma St. John, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen. 
The associate producers are Derek Clements, Eliza Costas, and Emily Pinto. Editing by Derek Clements and Lauren Hansen. Mixing by Derek Clements. Special thanks to Adriana Fazio. For more information about today's episode, go to katiekirk.com. You can also follow Katie Couric and Bozema St. John on Twitter and Instagram. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.